Welcome to Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. Before listening to today's episode, please be advised, some content may include discussion around topics that are difficult to hear, especially for children under the age of 13. We want to encourage you to care for yourself, security, and well-being. Resources of each episode will be listed in the episode description and on the website shittotalkabout.com. Hey, Jack. Thank you for joining Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. What is some shit you want to talk about? And please introduce yourself at the same time. Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Jack Goree, and I am a writer, a writing coach, and a coach for parents of transgender kids. I'm not necessarily in that order. And there's so much shit I want to talk about, but mainly focusing around the idea that transformation is something we all go through. And we've kind of gotten to this point where, like, in society, things like trans people are way over there and different and weird, but we're not so different. And I love that, especially when you and I have talked in our intro call and even before we dug into the interview, just talking about how you're okay. Before I dive into this question, please tell me about the and the audience about the books you've written, because there's one that I really want to focus on. Sure. So. I've written a novel, a couple of short stories. I've got another novel that I just actually submitted to Berkeley Publishing. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, but um, my biggest novel is Reinventing Hannah, which I have this blue background on. So I don't know if you can see I'll, my I'll blue I'll put novel it like right in front of your face, but... maybe. Let's see. Okay. We kind of see her. We kind of see. We'll put a photo in there. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll, we'll, but yeah, so didn't think that one through before I made that background. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Reinventing Hannah is about a 16-year-old girl named Hannah, obviously. <laughs> and Hannah is very shy, very quiet. Her friends call her Mouse, and she's spent her whole life trying to follow the rules and be a quote-unquote good girl that's not quite in line with who she really is and unfortunately the first time she breaks the rules it goes to a party of her friend somebody roofies her and she wakes up the next morning not knowing what happened to her and um and the book is really about the aftermath of that you know I don't focus on the assault itself um uh, you know I didn't want to go into graphic detail about that because that's not the point um yeah but um it's about how she not only regroups, but she transforms and she goes from being so shy and quiet to being an advocate for herself and for other survivors and um, having to go through that whole transformation process where she, where her old friends don't understand and think that this is just like, this is something wrong with you. This isn't who you really are when actually she's more being more who she is. So she has to like navigate all that and figure out who she is, who she wants to be, and and how she's going to change and how she's going to, you know, how how she wants to handle what happened to her, all those kinds of things. And um, I tried to show, I tried to make it more about her transformation because that's like the heart of the book. Like what happened to her was the catalyst for what she decides, um, but. It's the kind of thing where I feel like a lot of times when people write about sexual assault or read about or show it in movies or TV, they either make the character so completely broken that it's awful or 
they just gloss over it like, oh, that's no big deal. And I want to write something that's more authentic. And that was also one of the reasons I independently published it because when I was reading other books and not to knock them because the other books I read were good, they like, and they were, it wasn't like they were terrible books, but a lot of them were like, girl gets sexually assaulted, girl doesn't tell anybody, girl self-destructs for 300 pages, girl tells someone and feels better at the end, you know? And so I wanted to write something that was more like what happens after that, you know, like, and to show you don't have to self-destruct that, like, there are more ways to show that sexual assault is a horrible thing than making it turn somebody into a delinquent that is skipping school and doing drugs and having a lot of sex and all those kinds of things. That's like not the only thing that happens. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, as somebody that has uh, had sexual assault to them, I greatly appreciate that because I can say I've had it happen in two different instances and the second time definitely really hit me hard. I woke up and, uh, well, to my surprise, I had somebody, you know, that wanted some that I didn't say yes to. And um, it was very disturbing. And I remember walking home and I guess for myself, it didn't really register as much as the first time when I was a kid. And yet now that I'm adult, because this was when I was a teenager, I'm like, oh shit, maybe it did kind of register and I need to like work through that shit. But it also, I didn't become like a terrible human being or, you know, like I actually turned out pretty cool. I think, I don't know, but (laughs) um, yeah, I love how (laughs) that you, you use that because transformation is such a beautiful thing and I know that so many people use like the caterpillar to a butterfly caterpillars are still beautiful even if they like decide to chill as a caterpillar forever they're still beautiful you know and the process of becoming a butterfly you know they may not have as many caterpillar friends anymore because they have butterfly friends and butterfly friends are you know on different wavelengths or different hobbies or different life goals what made you write this book especially about transformation right so a couple of things one was part of it was that I was really sick like I said all those stereotypes of sexual assault a lot of times people think oh this isn't even really sexual assault because we've got this stereotype in our heads that it's uh god that it's a stranger who uses force that holds you down and like these other things that are questionable. Oh, that's not really anything, you know? And so I wanted to put a stop to that. And I wanted to do something to empower people who had been through it. And I never, I I was lucky enough that I've never had a full on like rape situation, but you know, back when I was in high school, I had a situation where I didn't go to my locker at all because when I did go to my locker, this was long before I transitioned. So it was like, you know, I went to high school presenting as female and I had breasts, which, you know, I still have (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. And um, there would be boys who would just touch my breasts while I was at my locker. And the one time that I told a teacher about it, he spoke to the boy and the boy was just like, oh, I fell into her by accident. Like, yeah, you don't, you fell into me from behind and 
touched my breast yet. I don't think so. So the way I, the way I dealt with was I just didn't go to my locker anymore because I was like that way they can't do that. And that's actually something I made it into the book. Uh, one of Hannah's new friends has had an experience like that. And so I wanted to shine light on those kinds of things too, because I think those are the kinds of things that are very common in schools, unfortunately, where it is the kind of thing where someone will not, will do something like that. It'll just be brushed off as, oh, it was an accident or, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, that kind of thing. And then people feel like they can't talk about it or they can't tell anybody, nobody's gonna care about this. It's not, it's not like somebody did something worse kind of thing, which is, you know, something that I also think happens a lot is that a lot of people are like, oh, well, this wasn't so bad. It's not like somebody was really violent with me. It's not like I had full on sex with somebody or something like that, or, you know, um, yeah, this person was did something to me or, but other people have it worse and I want people to stop doing that. So, you know, all of these reasons for writing it, but I also, I wanted to empower, I wanted to spread knowledge and I wanted to, show this kind of transformation that somebody could survive something like this and use it to put themselves together as best as possible rather than just being stuck, which is, you know, again, the stereotype is they're just self-destruct. This is because this is a bad thing that happened to them. Nothing will ever be right again. And thing, you know, throughout the book I show things are different. She sees things differently, but it's not a thing where it's like, oh, she can't move on, you know. And then the other thing I want to do, which I think is a bit different, and which I've actually gotten more pushback on this than anything else, is a lot of young adult literature has non-existent parents, right? Like, and part of that is because it's fan a lot of fantasy, like you think about like Harry Potter, there's no real parents, right? Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but I wanted I was writing for sort of realistic fiction, not fantasy. And I also felt like in a story like this where you've got a 16-year-old kid who had this terrible traumatic thing happen to, I felt like her parents should be part of the story. Not to the extent of them being viewpoint characters, obviously, because it's about her. But, you know, a lot of the books that I've read where a teenager is sexually assaulted will be something where the parents are completely oblivious, have no clue what's going on, and they show up once a while and say, your grades are falling, get them up, and that's it. And no clue there's something wrong with their kid. And I didn't like that because I was like, I don't think that's very realistic either. Probably realistic for some people, but not everybody. And so I wanted to go for something more realistic where Hannah's mom and stepdad notice something's wrong with her and she doesn't want to talk to them about what happened. But, you know, they keep pushing and they keep saying, we can tell you're depressed, we're concerned, we're worried, especially her mom who is bipolar and has. Has, has suicide attempt in her past is very sensitive to this and is thinking, you know, I don't want my child to go through what I went through. So it's like this push-pull thing where they'll be like, come make dinner, come help us make dinner so we can, and then they'll try to get her to talk or like they'll take her out to breakfast. And, and you know, because I feel like teenagers do have families. <laughs> and in literature, it's very often written like they don't like, oh, you're 16 you don't have any parents, you just wander all over the place on your own, you know, and figure out everything on your own. And 
I just felt like that wasn't realistic. And interestingly enough, I get more pushback on that than on anything else. Like I get people being like, oh, not everyone has a good relationship with their parents. So um, why should you change the, this uh, stereotype? And it's like, because. <laughs> because a lot of people you know? do have a good relationship with their parents. And I this is something that I, I told you uh, about a guest that is a coach for her for transgender children for their parents and that was something her and I were talking about is she's like there's plenty of parents out there in the world that really want to be there for their children but don't know how to be there and that's for you know all children doesn't matter what they are like it's hard to support teenagers are tough I only say that because I was a teenager once and let's just say my mom and I we're best friends now. Yet when I was a teenager, she was going through menopause. I was a teenager. It was not the easiest right. for right. either one of us. <laughs> but right. now, and I think that's so much more realistic. Yeah. Now I, when when you talk about uh your the transformation and how Hannah lost friends or you know like they saw her change I'm curious did you have that in your life as well just growing and blossoming into who you are yeah definitely and I think this is something that does happen a lot with transformation of any type and I'm fortunate that as a transgender person you know some people are are a little nervous about transitioning or afraid of transitioning because they're like, I gotta lose so many people. And I didn't lose a lot of people because most people did see like they were like, you're still the same person. Some people might not have understood, but they would have just been like, well, we're just like, okay, that's you, you do you cool, you know. But I did have one friend who was actually transgender also who just took this attitude of like, oh, you're not really transgender. You're just seeing me be transgender. So you're doing it too, kind of thing. So, you know, that friendship obviously didn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because I, I do have friends who are religious, but none of them subscribe to the, oh, LGBT people are against God kind of thing. So I didn't really have to deal with that. Um, Good. You know. Which is good, since I didn't have to deal with that as much as other people did, especially since I tra- when I started transitioning, I was in North Carolina, so that was an interesting. Um, and one of the things that happened that was interesting too, um, I when I went to DMV to after I changed my after I legally changed my name in North Carolina, and I went to DMV to get my new driver's license, and the DMV clerk said, "Oh wow, you changed your whole name." Um, for female name to male name, she was like, can I ask you something? And I was like, sure. But I was thinking in my head, oh, shit, here we go. She's going to be like, why the hell did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. She was just like, oh, I know your middle name is Asher. That's my nephew's name. So I was wondering what it means. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was like this opportunity just to have a really cool, like, connection with somebody. Cool. And, you know, I think one of the things that does happen, especially for transgender people because there's so much shit that happens is you get very oversensitive and you kind of start expecting that everyone who wants has something to say is going to have something to say. You know what I mean? 
So, you know, so I find that that's interest. That's something interesting that happens. And, you know, um, I did when I was in high school, I was transgender without really knowing what that meant. So I couldn't really explain it. And I also was autistic, but that wasn't diagnosed. So I had a lot of difficulty making friends. And so, you know, for me, the rough thing was that I remember seventh, eighth grade having a little party where I had some friends over. We all watched a movie and then just watching as time went on, like how those friendships just sort of drifted away. And it wasn't like any one specific thing. It was just kind of like, oh, we're in classes together, but we're not hanging out anymore, which I think happens a lot anyway yeah. for everybody at certain points in your life but just like that for me as a teenager was very confusing because it was just kind of like what's happening here you know why are these people not my friends anymore and so in the book Hannah has a group has uh has two friends that she's close with at the beginning and as she uh, and for her part of her transformation is that she sort of shifts her social circle so she starts going out with the guy she likes that she didn't want, that she didn't dare go out with before because her friends wouldn't like it. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and she some new friends, um, and then it becomes this whole thing of like, how does her old are, are her old friends going to fit in her life anymore? How you know that kind of thing? <clears throat> and for her, the hard thing is that one of her friends, one of her old friends, she's known since fifth grade. She moved to New York from Florida when she was in fifth grade and this girl was the first girl to befriend her and they've been close ever since. So it's this whole conflict where she's like, I don't want to end this friendship because she was so my first friend and we've been best friends for a long time, but this isn't working anymore. Like, what do I do? You know, which I think yeah. is um, a more like pointed kind of thing than what happened to me because even though one of my friends I drifted away from was someone I had been friends with all my life, it was never this whole, there was never one moment where it was like, you're like this and I'm like this. It was just more mm -hmm. of a thing where, uh, where she was like, I have different friends, different interests. So, you know, um, we didn't exactly not be friends, but we just didn't hang out anymore because we weren't doing the same things. So. Yeah. And, and I even in my own friendships, um, I'd call two of my two best friends. I call them more of my sisters. I'm an only child. So I call them my sisters and one I've known since birth and one I've known since seventh grade. So 11 or 12. And honestly, I don't think the three of us really have anything in common. We don't have any of the same friend groups, uh, except the they became friends because as we've grown older I'm 33 now they have both come to save me out of some really sticky situations they became friends as well but it's like our own special like bubble I guess you could say right. you like one of them likes country music one they both live in small towns I love the city they like it's yeah, it's so complimentary, but yet at the same time to have those friendships took so much work and there were times we didn't talk because we were transforming as human beings and who we were transforming to didn't really mesh with where the other one was. Right, and, right. And that includes one of my friends. She, she had, uh, she was one of my first friend to have kids and I shut down. I did not know what to do with 
my best friend having a kid. And it was something that I, I still feel horrible about today. She has told me she has forgiven me. I need to listen. <laughs> but I stopped talking to her because I didn't know what to do because I was like, uh, you got a kid. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that is. Like, they're right. like little aliens. So um, she definitely, oh, there's a kitty. Yeah, <laughs> um, so like he always does. He loves <laughs> his pal and his butt. Um, but she, like, that definitely was a transformation that we had to work through because, you know, our lives changed. But okay. I have many friends where I'm like, we're going to be friends for life. And within like three years, I'm like, my mom will be like, so what happened to so-and-so? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And I think, uh, I don't know if you found this to be the case for you, but I think for me, I think the whole pandemic has impacted that too, because a lot of my latest group of friends I met when I was at Columbia in New York City, when I graduated two or three years ago, and before the pandemic, like, I live out on Long Island, they live in New York City. So before the pandemic, I would go semi-regularly into the city to hang out with them. And then after pandemic, it was like, I'm not going anywhere. You yeah. Know, but they were nearby. And so we just sort of like our Facebook friends, but we like rarely talk anymore kind of thing. I definitely had it where I have had some friends that fizzled out like that. I've also had friendships grow stronger because of the pandemic uh because you actually have to like check in with people and be like yo you all right it was also probably the beginning of 2021 where I first admitted to one of my friends and then in tandem ended up admitting it to everyone else I get really high anxiety that people when they don't reply, it means that I'm not worth it. At least that was the belief I used to have. So I just wouldn't reach out to people. But that doesn't work when I'm forgetful and forget to reply to people because then it makes me seem just like a total asshole. So right. that was something that I had to really work through with my friends. Like we've talked about it. I'm like, cool, I'm going to make a conscious effort of calling you now. And I'm like, it's okay if you don't answer just I'm gonna call you and they've actually been surprised they're like Jen you're actually doing pretty good <laughs> after you know 32 years of not doing it you're doing pretty good right yeah I've had that issue too because like if people message me if I don't message them back right away then it like slips my mind and then all of a sudden I'm like oh shit it's been like a week and I never answered it yeah yes so I just try to set that you know expectation that I'm like I'm horrible at texting, at emailing, at replying, at remembering to reply. So if it's something important, feel free to call me like seven times and let me know. And also, uh, you might just get novels of text messages randomly because I remember to tell you a bunch of stuff as a heads up. And luckily, they've been like, okay, cool. Thanks. Thanks for the heads up. Got it. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I found like, a lot of times, too, it, it is a kind of thing where it's like just making that conscious effort to stay in touch, like, mm -hmm. is really important. And it can be difficult. And I think, especially for me, as an intro, I'm more of an introverted kind of person, you know. So um, during the pandemic, I wasn't like, oh, I'm missing going out of these big groups or anything like that, because I really wasn't. 
but it will be a thing where I'll be like, I haven't heard from so-and-so in a long time. And I wonder if we're still friends, you know? I definitely get that. And I'm, I'm curious because uh, you mentioned earlier that you are autistic, right? Yes. How does that show up with, um, I'm curious, just like, how did, what does being autistic look like? Because I don't think I've really done enough research there, but I'm also curious, like with, um, with writing and I, this is total hearsay that some mattering on where people are on the spectrum, some autistic people don't necessarily see feelings or um, the, you know, read between the lines. So I'm curious how that shows up with your writing as well. Right. Yeah. So I want to address that part first, because one of the things that one of my many missions in life is to raise awareness about autism and empathy, because there's this like stereotype that all autistic people don't have any empathy. They don't do feelings they don't get how it is for other people and that's actually for the most part not true what happens is that a lot of autistic people um are super super sensitive so and super empathetic so and so like if someone comes and comes to me and they're like really upset I'm gonna get really upset like which is very difficult like I've had to like learn how to put boundaries up <coughs> as a coach because obviously if I have a coaching session with someone they're crying, I can't start crying. That's not good to do any good. So right. But what happens is that sometimes people shut down, like the way you were saying you shut you shut down when your friend had a baby because you didn't know like how to relate to it. So some the, some autistic people are like that too, where they'll be like, Oh my god, this person's crying and they're upset and I'm feeling how upset they are. It's overwhelming. So I'm just gonna shut down and might say something logical or like that seems cold or unfeeling, but it's more because it's like, whoa, you know, this is very overwhelming kind of thing. Um, so that's something I talk actually talk about a lot because we get a lot of our ideas about autism from television and mm-hmm. movies where every autistic person is Rain Man, you know, <laughs> and um and it's not, you know, for me, I wasn't diagnosed till I was 33. Um, and I think for me, it was shown up mostly in the social aspects because what happens with autism too a lot of times is, uh, especially on the end of the spectrum where, you know, you're closer to neurotypical and not, is intellectually, I was like way ahead, like I was reading on a college level by second or third grade. So... <clears throat> Uh, my fifth grade, I was reading Dostoevsky, that kind of thing. So, which also makes it harder to relate to people anyway, because the average little kid is not doing that. Um, yeah. So, so, but as far as teachers go, if you're not a behavior problem, especially if you're read as a girl, because again, I didn't, you know, I didn't express my feelings about my gender identity also until I was in my 30s. So, as a kid, the teachers were like, oh, she's a sweet girl, so, and she's doing well academically, and back in the 80s and 90s, there wasn't all this emphasis on social development, and are kids socializing properly, and do they need these services, and those kinds of things, so, like, for example, when I was in first grade, the first day of first grade, I walked into the classroom, 
there was this one scene open it was next to a kid I don't I didn't know and I was like I'm not saying next to a kid I don't know so I walked past the seat and sat down at a back table at the back of the room that uh, was used like for reading lessons or whatever and the teacher came in and saw me just like oh we can't have you sitting back here let's find you a seat and she just kind of assumed that I just didn't see the seat and it never mm. occurred to her that I was just like I'm not sitting next to a kid I don't know <laughs> and purposely didn't sit there so those are the kinds of things that I think are probably a little better for people today because I think now there's a lot more awareness right and like sometimes it seems like every kid has an IEP for something yeah (laughs) and I I would definitely say with like the neurodiversity in in general not just in autism I have really bad social anxiety that um my second friend who had a baby uh I was much more prepared for hers. I went to her baby shower. She had probably 50 people there. Everyone was surrounding her outside. And I chilled in the kitchen watching through the window. And when people are like, oh, Jen, are you okay? I'm just like, I get really bad social anxiety when I'm by a lot of people. So I'm just going to go chill in the corner just because like, I can't, I can't people right now. I might be outgoing, but that's going to be a lot different than the, uh, as you were talking about being uh, overstimulated from all of this going on. So I love that you're helping break that stigma for autistic people, because even the question I asked you, that was basically the stigmatism around autistic people. And I hate that. I, I'm glad you like crushed it there because I hate that I brought up a stereotype, but um, how does, so now that we get that not all autistic people are, you know, lack of empathy and do have feelings. (laughs) Um, I'm laughing because it's like embarrassing. So that's, that's where that giggle is coming from. Um, How did that show up with your writing? Did people really question your writing because of it or give you any uh, hard time with that? Well, there have been sometimes people make comments like in beta reading, you know, like after you write a draft and you show it to people to get feedback uh, where they would be like, why are these characters talking about this openly in front of other people or something like that? <laughs> you know, and they would be like, I don't think that people would do that. Like most people okay. would have wanted that. And so it's like that kind of thing where it's like, oh, that's something that just never occurred to me because as an autistic person, I wouldn't be like, oh, there's someone else standing here. I can't say to you anything about anything important, you know? Mm, <laughs> so Okay. So stuff like that where it'd be like, oh, okay, so most people wouldn't do that. Though so I would have to think about that and think about if I wanted to rework it or not. And one of the interesting things for me is that I've never actually had a character who's autistic in any of my books. But I always like think about it in the back of my mind because I write very organically that, you know, I start with the character and then I discover more stuff about them as I'm writing. So like my new one, Heart Failure, which um, uh, which is the one I just submitted for publication. So um, I'm waiting to hear back about that. Um, um, it took me several drafts to realize that my character had PTSD because she was in a previously previous relationship that was abusive and so as I was writing I would see her act in ways that were similar to me as an autistic person so then I would think I wonder if this character could turn out to be autistic and then it turned out 
to be something else, you know, where um, she has, because of the PTSD, she has a hard time trusting her instincts, so she can't tell, like, is this person really my friend, or are they, like, messing with me kind of thing, um, <clears throat> and she has a lot of social anxiety and difficulty trusting people, and so she has a very small friend group that are people she trusts and then you know and it's more of a suspense novel or somebody who's trying to ruin her her life and she's trying to figure out who it is but it's like a thing of how can she know who to trust to help her because she can't trust anybody because of what happened to her kind of thing so you know it really goes into PTSD in some depth which was real not easy to write and one of the things that happened, you know, is when I showed it to beta readers, one of my beta readers and sort of portal mark would be like, why would she be suspicious of this person? Why would she think that? And so it was the kind of thing where it was like, well, because she has this past and this mental illness, that's why she would think like that. So, you know, so it was things like that. But and with Hannah also, like in her early draft, I had written her being pretty OCD, like she had a lot of rules for herself like oh you can't order hot chocolate before thanksgiving or that kind of thing um okay. uh, where she was very regimented very rigid and so, so as i was writing it you know it would occur to me oh maybe she's autistic you know like it's one of those things where it's like you just never know and because autism also does overlap with other things like ptsd or mm-hmm. um ocd or other issues that someone might have so, you know, it's always interesting and being a discovery writer, like it's interesting getting to know the characters and learn like what makes them tick. I, the entire time you're describing these characters and their development, and I'm, I'm very curious, especially since you said that you're a writing coach now, I'm literally going, how the hell do you develop a character because A, this is something I've overthought so many times trying to write something fictional that I go, oh, this would be a cool idea. Wait, but then they're going to have this and then they're going to have this. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. I can't move. So I, do you mind sharing a bit of sure. where someone might even start on character sure. development with, yeah, with writing? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that I teach as well. And I'm hoping in... Um, sometime this winter, um, I uh, um, probably February, Marchish. I'm gonna want to do a class because so many people ask me this. <laughs> so I'm like, yes. I might, uh, I, I would love to like teach people all at once. <laughs> but yes. uh, yeah, one. So, but the basic is that I start with the character. So I start with thinking about you know thinking about just very bare bones like who is this character like reinventing Hannah. Hannah is a 16-year-old high school student who suffers this traumatic event, right? So that might be where I start. And then, okay, then the next thing that I think about is where do I want her to be at the end of the book? Like what, how has she changed at the end of the book? Because then you can go backwards and be like, okay, so at the end of the book, she, without giving away the entire story, she's a lot more self-confident and is uh, and is an advocate for other survivors. So, okay, so then at the beginning of the book, she has to be the opposite of that. 
because otherwise okay. there's no transformation. Okay. So, so I someone, start with that. It's not as linear. Like you're not going, yeah. they start here and then their next step is here. And then their next step is here. Right. You kind of end up, okay, that solves so many curiosity questions for me on yeah. writing. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. And there definitely are different ways to write. Some people are more plotters where they are like, I want to know every single thing that happens before I start writing, which I'm not because if I was going to do that, I might as well write it. <laughs> um, and some people are what's called pantsers because they like right by the edge of their seat of their pants. Like they have no idea what's going to happen. They just jump in and start writing and see where it goes. Um which I'm closer to that, but I'm sort of in between because I like to have these bare bones. And, uh, and I also like to have some idea of where it's going. Some, you know, two or three major events that are going to happen throughout the book because that just makes it a lot easier. Because what ends up happening is that if you are a pantser or a discovery writer, which is somebody who like doesn't do any planning and just sits down and writes, you're kind of planning it in your head as you go along. Like, you're sitting down and being like, okay, today I'm going to write the first scene. And in this first scene, she's talking to her friend, just like a random example, you know? Yeah. And so you're writing it. And I find for me, keeping all that in my head is too much. Like if I try to keep all that in my head, I'm going to be like, I don't know what to do first. I don't know where this is going. And I'm not going to write anything or else I'm going to write something and be like, this is not going anywhere. And it's like being in a maze and hitting all these dead ends. Um, and so that makes it take forever, right? So even if it's just like, sometimes depending on the project, I'll do a little more or less. I did more with heart failure because it's more of a mystery suspense kind of thing where it's like somebody's after her. So I need to know who they are and what their right. problem is because otherwise it's right. not make So I needed to do a little bit more extensive planning for something like that to make it work. But for something like Reinventing Canada that doesn't have those kinds of mysteries, I didn't need to do as much. So depending on the project, I might sit down to write and I might make like a bullet point of these are the three things I want to happen in this chapter so that at least I see that on the page. And if I see a bullet point on the page saying Hannah has a fight with her friend, then it's not I don't have to have in my head what I'm doing at the same time as I'm trying to write. So it's not so overwhelming. That does make sense. And I'm probably asking the most like bare basics, you know, novice questions uh, for beginner writers. And I, I'm also asking this because in my mind, <coughs> writing in general, especially creative writing also is a way of journaling. Right. Too. And, and so the reason I'm asking this is, I've tried those like daily, you know, writing prompt you'll, right. you can find on the internet to try to write something. So let's say you're supposed to write about this coffee cup and I'll right. write coffee cup with zebras. Done. Got it. And, right. and I feel like that's the part where so many uh, newbies that could possibly be good at writing really don't like saying this to you is a lot easier because, uh, you know, I can look at the transcript, but I could be like, this is a tan mug that came from Michigan City Zoo that has zebras holding each other in a compassionate embrace. 
you know, like it could be, (laughs) you know, a bit better, but have you, how do you, would you suggest to our listeners that they can kind of discover that creative side of themselves? Because I feel like that's so much that creativity, so many of us shut down be and that hinders our uh, transformation to who we are meant to be. Yeah, definitely. And I would say a couple of things like number one, those kinds of prompts where you're just describing a coffee cup, that's like more of a description than like a story, right? So something like that, like description is something I usually add in later drafts because you don't want to get bogged down in like what everything looks like right at the beginning because then you're not thinking about what's happening in the scene because you're thinking about what's the right word to describe this color of the paint on the wall or something, you know? And it's kind of like, um, it's, it's kind of like if you're, if you're somebody who is first learning to read, you can't understand what you're reading because you're struggling to put the sounds together. So mm-hmm. um, the script is kind of like that. That's the thing that comes later. But what I like to do, um, a couple of things that I encourage people to do, um, one is free writing where you just like set a timer for five minutes and you just write whatever comes to mind for five minutes. Um, and the goal is just to try the, it. Just keep the pen moving or the keys on the keyboard, whichever way you're going to do it. But it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to do anything. And you can do that like in response to a prompt or not, or just whatever's in your head, like journaling either way. Um, you look like terrified or something. Yes. So anybody watching YouTube, you'll be able to see my face for anybody, you know, listening. I am giving Jack like this, like, that sounds like the scariest thing ever, free writing. Ugh. So, um, you know, because uh, of who I am, I'm totally going to try it and tell you how it is in like a month. So uh, awesome. expect a follow-up, Jack. <laughs> awesome. Yay, because uh, I, I, that, that's great. Yeah. And it can be a little scary at first because uh, sometimes you might have this blank page and be like, <laughs> I don't know what to write, but then you can just start writing like nonsense and something will come. Like I use it a lot when I have, when I'm stuck on what's happening in the story. A lot of times I'll start, sit down, start free writing about the story. Like I'll kind of do like a journal entry, like this scene isn't working. It really sucks because blah, 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 blah. And then like a certain point of doing that, I'll get an idea of how to fix it. So I find that helpful. And then the other thing that can be helpful if, especially if you want to get more into writing fiction, is to kind of use a what if kind of thing. Like you can think about something that happened today and be like, what if, the, what if this, like at jumped on me just then, <laughs> what if this uh, happened a different way? So like, um, like you could take something mundane. Like if you drive to work, you can think about something, you could just do something like, what if I turned the wrong way on this uh, when I was driving to work? What might have happened? And you know, write about that. And those kinds of prompts I find are more helpful because they're about something happening as opposed to <coughs> describe the object next to you, which, you know, takes a little bit more doing to make it more of a story because like with the coffee cup, you could write about a character and explain why this coffee cup is important to what they're doing with the coffee cup and that kind of thing but that's not really okay. what the asked you so but you yeah. can always adapt it that way too, if you wanted to so you know 
Um, I'm very much a proponent of character first in fiction. So, you know, there's there's character driven, there's plot driven. And plot driven is like the things that happen are more important than the characters. But I don't like that because then what ends up happening is you're like moving the characters around like pieces on a chessboard, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. I need this character to be in this store because this store, because that way she can be there when there's a robbery or something. And you're like, I'm putting her there for no real reason, except I need her there. <laughs> you know? Okay. And I don't like that because it's, to me, that's like, that's contrived. <laughs> and readers might be like, why was she there? <laughs> you know? So. Um, that makes sense. So I prefer to always start character. Like, what is your character really want? Like, how are how do you want them to change what is it they're trying to do that those two questions are like the most helpful thing and then you can always also be like and what's in their way um is the other thing because that's what creates a story like if if reinventing Hannah was a story about how this terrible thing happened and then she decides to change and all her friends said oh cool the end that wouldn't be a very good story (laughs) um it's uh you know knowing figuring out okay um this is happening what's in the way of her getting what she really wants oh and it could be a person it could be a thing there are some stories where it could be weather like right like there's a snowstorm so she can't get home to be with her significant other because of the weather you know right that kind of thing so I love how you can relate all of these pieces and can definitely see why you are a writing coach. So thank you for the tidbit there. And I'm definitely going to do a 30 day challenge for myself of free writing for five minutes. I'm nervous of this because um, I've tried it before and failed miserably, but you know, I'm going to give it another go. I'm curious because I know that your writing coaching is a bit newer. I'd love to dive in a bit more on your transformation coaching and especially, um, you know, how you support parents of uh, transgender because those are two transformation. We talked about that quite a bit in your book. How does that, how do people discover that they need transformation or where are they at normally when they go to find you right so yeah so you know people come to coaching for a specific outcome like no one really comes to any kind of coaching or therapy or anything like that being like I want to transform like that's not usually what people are thinking so it's more of a thing with this specific, where someone's coming with a specific problem. So the two main groups of people that I being introverts or not comfortable in social situations or whatever the case is. And the other group is, again, parents. I feel like it's a little bit more straightforward because a lot of times they have this very specific goal just like I was talking in real life people come to coaching with specific goals so a parent of a transgender child generally is going to want to say something like okay my child just came out I don't know what to do or I'm trying to be supportive and everything I say seems to piss my child off you know or my child or I had one client who was like 
this really doesn't necessarily have to do with them being transgender, but my child is lying to me about little stupid things all the time, and I want that to stop, you know? So <clears throat> they'll come to the coaching with that specific goal, and they're looking for someone who can help them with that. And the other stuff is sort of more, <clears throat> not subconscious, but it's something that happens along the way, right? Because like somebody comes to coaching because they want to know how to support their child in this situation, and they'll end up feeling more confident about themselves or closer to their child as a result of what we're doing. But that's not why they came. Like They didn't set out, like, I'm going to hire a coach because I want to feel more confident about yeah. my relationship as much as they are. I want to hire a coach because I have this problem and I need I don't know what to do. Um, and then the same with, with introverts, because of an introvert, someone who is feeling very shy and very quiet, and they may be feeling like I should be speaking up about these things and I'm not doing it. Um, anything from um, uh, somebody who might feel like I don't agree with my friends about even little things, like in Reinventing Hannah, there's a scene where she recalls that before for this when she last time she went to the mall because she goes to the uh, to the food court in the mall on her first date with her new boyfriend and she recalls when she went with her friends last year she wanted to try the food at the Indian uh stand but she didn't do it because that's not what her friends were eating kind of thing you know so it could be something as simple as like uh, as that which someone's not going to be thinking this is an issue of me not standing up for something important but <clears throat> just little things like I wanted to try that and I didn't, or I wanted to do this and I didn't, you know? Um, why why do I have so much anxiety over something that's not that important, you know? Someone might feel like that. And that's interesting as I've, I've talked about this in previous uh, episodes of there's so many people calculate or assume that if you're outgoing, you're extroverted. Right. And I'm 100% not like I told you earlier that I have social anxiety um, in large groups where most introverts or excuse me, most extroverts will actually get a lot of energy from being in a large right. group of people. And I'm like, even doing uh, a podcast episode or if I have to talk to a lot of people for work, um, I will end up sleeping for like half the day because I'm like, I'm so mentally right. drained from like output I need to like recharge and take care of me and that took so many years to learn about myself about you know how to recognize that I am more introverted than I am extroverted and how to take care of myself even though it's not normal that right. normal <laughs> I say it like that because nobody's normal we all right, have different yeah, ways of doing things yeah. yeah that's a whole other conversation normal compared to what is like who set that standard <laughs> right that's why I'm always curious about like neurodiversity I'm like so isn't everyone neurodiverse because we all are different yeah I mean to an extent that I think what it is <laughs> that certain like characteristics are labeled as being on this spectrum and other characteristics are labeled as not being on the spectrum. And it's not really a hard and fast line because, and I think that's one of the things that makes it difficult if you are if you are autistic or if you have ADHD, which the other 
big neurodiversity. A lot of times people who are neurotypical will be like, but I have some of those traits too. Like, yeah. And so it's like, where do you draw the line between somebody who is neurotypical, but it sometimes gets distracted and somebody who has a attentional issue? Yes, yes. And that is something. So um, I uh, have been diagnosed with PTSD, bipolar type 2, dyslexia, and ADHD. I'm, you know, so you have no idea if I'm going to be a hyper hypomania, which means that I'll be like really pro, uh, productive and kind of hyper with the bipolar type 2, or if I'll just be sleeping somewhere <laughs> between the two. Yeah, it's totally annoys my partner that to clean the house if I'm in charge of cleaning the house I have to clean the closet first to make room for everything else (laughs) which is why as I said uh to you when we started this conversation uh that I was running late because my background is not put together and I do want to call myself out on that just to show you know anybody that is because Guys, I'm hiding it. I'm just really good at learning where the camera is. And I wanted to take care of everything in the closet first. And um, let's just say it takes me a lot longer to clean than most people. <laughs> so right. uh, it's, it's part of like, you know, learning that just because neurodiversity is different doesn't mean that it is bad which I think took me a very, very long time to learn. I am curious though, because I, I don't want to go too much off a, of, on a tangent of that. I love what the work you do with introverts. And before you said that the other large group that you work with, it has to do with uh, parents of transgender. What What is something um, I'm going to ask in, in two pieces? If someone is feeling that they are transgender or that they are not the sex that they were born as or don't identify as that. What are some tips and tricks that you may tell them? Right. Yeah. So it all depends on your personal situation because a lot of times, and I actually just wrote an article about this because I wrote about uh, in Go Magazine, I had an article about being transgender during the holidays because a lot of times people might have to see family that either doesn't know or isn't accepting. And so that can be very difficult. And so it all comes down to a couple of things. Um, one is how comfortable you are with people knowing. And, you know, because the first person you have to come out to is yourself. So um, people often start with, I always encourage people to start with experimenting because that's, how I figured it out because I kind of felt like weird when people would call me a woman or a girl, like it didn't feel right, but I couldn't really articulate why. So I got my hair cut short. I started wearing men's clothes and I would go into restaurants and somebody would be like, how you doing, ma'am? And that would annoy me. It would be like, uh, hello, I'm obviously not a woman because why would I be wearing a blue buttoned down men's dress shirt and have a crew cut and which granted you know there are people who do that who are who identify as women so it's not just everyone just being stupid but you know in my head I was like this is 
I'm so obviously not a woman. What is wrong with these people that would piss me off? And so that's when I started to realize there's more to this than just like not feeling comfortable with the word woman, you know? So um, experimenting as best as you can. And the other thing is safety, because unfortunately there are some places where there are lots of people who are violently against transgender people. Um, And so you have to do what makes you safe, feel safe. and sometimes I would write, when I used to work on the crisis line, I used to work on the Trevor Project crisis line, which is an LGBTQ specific uh, suicide uh, crisis line. <clears throat> and um, one of the things I would tell people, because sometimes people would call and they would be like, I'm transgender. I absolutely cannot be out in front of my parents or I cannot be out at school or whatever the case was. Um, but I'm really feeling depressed because I'm a girl and I'm being treated as a boy or vice versa. And one of the things I would suggest is we would talk about what can you do to affirm your identity to yourself that other people might not see. So like, for example, one person might say, I can wear a necklace under my shirt. No one else will know it's there, but it's a necklace that matches the gender that I am. That, you know, so um, like, or, or someone else might say, I can draw in my journal or write in my journal. Um, I think this person was an artist, but anyway. So they drew a picture of themselves as the girl that they saw in their head. And they had that in their private journal so they could look at it. And that made them feel better. And so there's those small things and those things you can do that you feel safe. And then when you're ready to come out, if you are, the other thing is that coming out is not something you do to everybody all at once. Like that's the way that they kind of portray it on TV. They're like, oh, this person came out, you know. And you yeah. see celebrities do that who like are just like, I'm gonna come out in front of the whole world. I can announce it in this magazine. That's not the way it works for most people. So you can always like a lot of times with kids, especially who wanted to come out to their parents, would be like, okay, so you want to come out to your parents? Who do you think is more likely to be accepting, mom or dad? And then like mm-hmm. go to that person first. Or if you feel like neither of them will be, expect- be accepting, do you have a brother or sister? Do you have a friend who you think will be accepting? You know, and you start with the people who you feel more, most comfortable with. And if you decide you want to come out to other people, that way you leave the challenging people for last because it builds your confidence when you come out to someone they're like, oh, cool, right? So um and they're totally accepting you're like oh okay so i'm not not gonna lose everything because this person was accepting so you want to start with those people that you're fairly confident with because that way you can kind of build up to the people who might have a negative reaction because if you start with someone who you're not expecting to it to go well and it doesn't go well that can make you feel like oh shit the whole world is gonna be against me because this is the first person i told and they were shitty about it yeah, so starting small and to people that you feel like would be most accepting. And I loved what you said about drawing in their journal about, you know, who they see themselves as or wearing a necklace of who they identify as. I feel like that is such a powerful way to not lose yourself while that challenge of identifying to the world. That is. Yeah. Oh, that just like it gives me like hope is the best way of saying it yeah. of 
if if people are in a bad situation that they can still stay true to themselves. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, and I think as time goes on, there are less bad situations than there have been in the past. And it is really cool, like I think you mentioned earlier, that most parents do want to support their kids. You know, we hear on the news, so-and-so kicked their kid out of the house and transgender people get kicked out of the house. And there are parents who are doing that, which is unfortunate. It's also, by the way, illegal if your child is under 18 and you decide not to give them housing that's like neglect. Um, But I don't think those are the majority. It's just that so-and-so came out to their parents and nothing happened. It's a news, so it's not going to be reported. So right. Or supportive parents yeah. aren't gonna be in the news. Yeah. Yeah, most of the time and, like something like they're in the middle of uh some town where everyone is hateful. Yeah. Uh, and how and um an, another part of this question is what are some words of encouragement to parents that just found out that their children are are trans and identifying as not what they were born as, because one thing that I I mentioned earlier is we had a guest on the podcast that also went into the, uh, you know, she supports transgender parents. She mentioned that as a mother, she, most parents will picture a life for their children just because that's what parents do. So it's almost like, like letting go of that, you know, not necessarily that they have any problem with their child's, you know, switching genders. It's more of the grief that comes with the dream right. that they didn't even mean to be attached to or do, just that naturally happened. Right. So, yeah, and I think that's important. And also remember, it's not that your child is switching genders, it's that they're expressing the gender that they really feel they are, that they couldn't Good call out. Um, but um, it's a transition for parents also. And that's something I think is really important for the parent to realize is by the time your kid comes out to you, they've done all this soul searching. They've gone through this. Who am I? Why do I feel like this? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I neither? Am I both? What the hell's going off me? And they've come to a point where they're like, this is why I am. I'm ready to tell mom and dad. But for you as the parent, you're at the very beginning of that journey when they tell you. So you're not in the same place where you're you're first, this is probably new to you while, and for some parents it's not. I have had some parents who have said, actually, I always kind of knew and it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, if you're not a parent who, but if you're not a parent who kind of knew and this is a shock to you, then it's because you're at the beginning stage where your child has already traveled. Um, and it is going to take time to get used to. There is a period of adjustment. And I think the most important thing is to realize your good intentions do count for something because um, if you are wanting to support your child, that's half the battle. And then you just have to learn the best way to do it. Um, So I think that's important to realize and to realize that some things are just going to be habits that you have to change, especially when it comes to names and pronouns. I think that's where parents have a lot of trouble because you, unless your child has come out to you when they're like three, and even then you've had a couple of years 
You know, yeah. there are people who do that. There are very young children these days who are coming out. But um, for most people, it's something that's going to happen when your kid's a little older or even an adult or a teenager or a preteen. You've had <coughs> years and years of calling them by this name and this pronoun. So in my case, I was 33 years old when I transitioned. My parents had 33 years of calling me by a female name and calling me she. So it would not be realistic after 33 years and just snap your fingers and be like oh yeah it's he and it's jack and not have to think about it you know and I, I would say that's the same with friends even though i've had them for a few years that have transitioned of going from uh she to he or to they and them the they and them switch me up so hard because i'm like grammatically i it hurts my head not the the phrasing itself it's more of like there's he and him and they and them have always been plural so for some reason it gets stuck in my head like i'm like wait did i say that grammatically correct right. that's what normally gets but that's even with people that i've only known a few years so as parents i can only imagine how difficult that is right uh, with they and them, I always advise people think about it this way. Like we do use it in English as a singular sometimes. Like um, if somebody finds a wallet, they might be like, someone left their wallet on the counter. So that's a good way of thinking about it. So I always encourage people to think about it that way because it's um, really the same thing. Um, but that's also. I think harder for parents sometimes too because they haven't heard this before. Like they didn't grow up hearing people. Yeah. And so it is a little bit easier, even if your child is switching from she to he or he to she, because it's more of in your realm of possibility. And then there are some people who instead of they and them might use uh pronouns like Z or Zim or some mm -hmm. other pronoun that's supposed to be a combination of he and she that you might not have heard of it at all. I was like, this doesn't even sound like English to you. So, okay. That's so, good you to know, know too. all of those things take time and you always want to be respectful. You know, you never want to be like, well, my child said they're using this pronoun, but I think it's stupid. So I'm not going to do it kind of thing. Right. Like that would be not supportive, but you um, definitely, if you're like, she, I, he, or they, I think there's they now, you know, that's okay to yeah. have that confusion. And they're just expect mistakes. Don't think that, don't expect yourself to be perfect at it. And the most important thing is if you make a mistake, just correct it quickly and move on. Like one of the most awkward things for me when I was first transitioning is if I would go, and this didn't really happen with my parents or people I knew well, but like I would go to the grocery store, for example, uh, in the days where I was going to grocery stores and not ordering a lot because there was no COVID then. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but for example, I go to the grocery store and someone would say, can I help you, ma'am? And sometimes I would just let it go because I didn't always feel like correcting people 24 hours a day because it gets exhausting. But sometimes I would say, actually, please call me sir. And sometimes a person would get really awkward about it. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize, blah, blah, blah. Like, don't do that. Just say, oh, okay, no problem. And if it's someone you don't, or if you're talking to somebody about your child and you're like, and you're talking about, oh, she, I mean, he, 
that's all you have to do. You don't have to like make a yeah. big production. And I, I appreciate that is something that has been said over and over again is that there's no need for a big production of it. I I will say as being a host uh, for this podcast that I have a challenge of wanting to make a bigger production when I mess up because to write this set, set the right expectations for how important it is to to properly acknowledge someone. And I know that's something that I am learning from time and time again of people telling me that you don't want to make a big production out of it to go, okay, Jen, that is what you've been told by multiple people. You're going to have to chill and it doesn't right. need to be a big production. And right. Jack, I know we're wrapping up on time, but I just want to make sure that did we cover everything that you wanted to cover today? Yeah, we definitely did. I just wanted to let people know like how to get a hold of me so that they can continue this conversation. Um, and, by the, and also, this has been really fun and really cool, really chill. Um, and I did want to just respond to your last point and say, you know, you can think of it as it's because you have this platform, you can model the way that people need to respond when they make these kinds of mistakes. So instead of making a big production out of it, if you just are like, oh, sorry, I meant he or whatever, then your listeners and your viewers will see that's the way to do it. Thank you for that. And that is what I'm learning, even though I want to call myself out on it and it's going, well, Jen, that's not what other people want. And you have to, you know, be <coughs> supportive. And right. I really appreciate that call out. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, I've got a pencil. Uh, this is a a propos of nothing, but my pencil says "weapon of mass creation." So I just wanted to share that. With nice, everybody. yay! Oh, uh, but yeah. So um, I just want to uh, let people know how to get a hold of me for various things. Um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm not doing TikTok yet. I might do that in the future. But, uh, I have heard that it's really good for writers, so I will look into it at some point. But anyway, um, for right now, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at author Jack Ori, and on Facebook, my username is Coach and Author Jack Ori. So you can find me in those places or on my website. Um, if you are interested in writing coaching. I have one-on-one -on -one slots available right now. You can go to um, my website, jackare.com, um, and it's um, give birth to that book. Um, or you can just go to my website and click on where it says writing. You'll find information about my programs there. Um, and there's also a section on my website if you're interested in talking about transgender issues. There's a section for uh, under services there that says full family transition. And of course, with the introverted coaching, there's um, uh, my No More Mouse program is under there too. So yeah, just bookmark my website. <laughs> You'll find everything there. Yes. Um, JackAore.com. And if you want to find, if you want to get Reinventing Hannah, it's on Amazon. Uh, um, it's also a pinned post on my Twitter, so you can go there and see the link. Um, Is there an audiobook yet? 
There is an audiobook version. In fact, when you go to Amazon, you have your choice of Kindle, softcover, hardcover, or audio. And so you can just click on the right one. My dyslexic brain is very, very grateful for that because now I can go listen. Yay. Awesome. And Jack, last question for you. What is uh, something that you're grateful for? So I am grateful for being in fairly good health. Uh, I had a health scare about a month ago um, and I will be, ha- I will be having surgery next month, but to finish correcting the issue but um and I could go on about that forever because I also have to do with transgender health care and being very grateful that when I was in the hospital everyone was respectful of my gender identity and I was able to get ultrasounds on my uterus even though I look male so they were able to find out what the problem was and I have uterine fibroids so I'm having surgery but um but anyway I'm really grateful for having my health because when I was in the hospital I didn't know what was going on because I'd become severely anemic after some bleeding um Mm. I was like what's happening and my doctor had said it could be cancer which was really scary to contemplate and I was like just about to launch my program my writing coaching and I was also just about to uh finish my new novel and I was and it was that whole thing of like what if it's something really serious and I don't have that much time left and these things aren't going to happen? So I'm really grateful that turned out not to be the case and that I'm back to being able to do the things that I want to do. And I'm grateful you're here. That's not my, you know, daily grateful thing that I was going to say, but I'm just grateful you're here. Uh, to our listeners, uh, I will post this on social media as well. I just have adored Jack since seeing Jack's website. All of Jack's photos are so friendly. I can't, I just can't. I just, I like share Jack's website with everyone because I was just like, oh my gosh, Jack is so friendly. And he was the inspiration behind a lot of my photos. His one on the grass in front of the house. I just absolutely adore that photo, Jack. And thank you for being the inspiration. And I am so grateful for you. You're just so chill and like so friendly and you break things down so well for uh, like everyone to comprehend and not in a like in a mean way of breaking it down which I think is so beneficial and rare so thank you thank you I'm really glad to hear all that because I I I love being around people who get me so (laughs) and thank you Yay. Well, thank you, Jack. And we'll talk soon. Yes. Talk to you soon. We appreciate you listening to the episode. Please like, follow, and share on our social media at shit to talk about. That is shit the number two talk about. Stay tuned on Wednesdays and Fridays for new episodes. This episode was made possible by production manager, Trom Nguyen, business manager, Bill Powell, and your host, Jack.